0: You're listening to the Judicial Watch Weekly Update with Tom Fitton. Hey everyone, Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our weekly update on social media. Thanks as always for joining us this week. A lot to talk about. An historic Judicial Watch victory for the rule of law and for constitutional government and against the left's radicalism in California. I'll talk about that case. Uh, New developments showing FBI corruption In a case that was used to smear Trump, I'll talk about that. Plus we have a trial coming up in a case related to CRT. A football coach was fired for complaining about it in his daughter's class. So a lot going on at Judicial Watch and uh, I'll give you uh, the best analysis I can, not only of uh, these cases, Uh, But what else is going on right now here in America? So first up, and it's not something I want to let pass without mention, is what I think is a disastrous decision by the Senate to confirm Judge Jackson to the Supreme Court. Now, uh, those of you who have been following the news, Judge Jackson was President Biden's first um, Supreme Court nominee, and he's got it and she will be a justice of the Supreme Court. It's historic demographically in that uh, she is a black female. And the problem is not that she's a black female and there's Obviously there's this history of making um, a development with her ascending to the court, but it's the result of a specific discriminatory process that led to her selection. So her decision or her selection has been marred by President Biden's uh, process of refusing to consider any other candidate based on race and sex. Nothing like that has happened in modern American history. And uh, in addition to that, She's an extremist. Uh, Her testimony, her hearings and information related to her confirmation expose this advocacy both on and off the bench uh, on behalf of leniency for child pornographers slash pedophiles. I didn't know that about her background prior to the hearing or just shortly before the hearing when Senator Hawley started talking about it. I mean, it just shows you how radical and activist she is in terms of rule of law issues and and crime issues. Her inability to define the uh, term "woman," saying she's not a biologist, highlights her critical theory, uh, her embrace of critical theory. So you have this radicalism uh, evident in her uh, her prior career before joining the bench, uh, during the Obama administration, and uh, then her career on the bench. So uh, the idea that any senator would vote for someone with such a radical position is troubling. And I, and I have the same standard for Democrats and Republicans. My view is, you don't give Democrats a free vote on this, or you don't give Republicans a free vote. You don't say to Democrats, well, of course you have to vote because uh, uh, the president from your party nominated her. No, you have to exercise independent judgment. So um, uh, senators like Senator Manchin or Sinema or Senator Kelly and, and other senators who uh, promote this moderate uh, exterior while voting for the, one of the biggest extremists in the history of the Supreme Court to ascend to the, uh, the position of justice but certainly she's the most liberal justice uh, in the modern era. And she was voted uh, with, um, uh, she got every Democrat, three Republicans voted for her, Senator Murkowski from Alaska, uh, Senator uh, Mitt Romney from Utah, who unbelievably had voted against her going out to the circuit court, the appeals court, not that long ago. Somehow she's changed and She's now qualified for the Supreme Court. How does that work? Talk about a weak weak vote. And then Senator Collins from Maine, who also knows better. And unfortunately, the Republicans have been planning to lose this vote from the get-go. And the reason I want to highlight this is because there should be accountability even now for those senators who, A, didn't do enough to oppose her or actually supported her. And if you have concerns about that, you need to share your concerns, not only now, but in the future and remind people that you remember what they did. And and you want accountability and you want to share your views on it. Obviously be respectful and if you call offices and such. But my point is, you know, we just can't let this sort of assault on our constitution and the Senate in, bipartisan fail, in a bipartisan failure, let a nominee like this get, fo- get through? It's unbelievable. In addition to the fact that she was selected on the basis of race and sex discrimination, a process that the Senate shouldn't have abided by either. So, you know, I pray for Judge Jackson. I still pray the Lord gives her wisdom and discernment. Maybe she'll make some good decisions, but she's going to be a reliable and unfortunately an extreme vote on matters before the court and so uh it's not good news uh you know the republicans uh, some of them have probably justified their lack of energy in pursuing opposition to candidates such as judge jackson as well she's replacing another liberal on the court well she's going to be there for 30 plus years she'll be influential her dissents will be quoted by other judges who are going to uh, abuse their positions, I would suspect the way that this is the liberal activism way. You find uh, justices' um, decisions that you like, even if they're dissents, to justify liberal activism in other jurisdictions and other courts. So to give voice to someone with such extreme views and to give her this lifetime appointment, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Now, what does it mean for Judicial Watch? What does it mean for us? Well, it just means we got more work to do, right? We need to make sure the laws are followed and that uh, we work to make sure that senators uh, understand the duties that they have to pursue and uh, the obligations they have in terms of protecting the constitution from uh, judges who would tear it apart. And uh, on top of that, uh, we've got work to do to make sure that uh, our law schools and our legal community uh, start producing better judges in the sense of judges who are willing to go uh, go to uh, the line for us on the Constitution now thankfully the Supreme Court has several justices like that but I highlight that because there are some justices some who are appointed by Republicans who are sometimes are weak on on some of these decisions because they're afraid of, I would, they don't say they're afraid of it, but it's pretty clear they make political decisions that they otherwise would not have made for fear of public criticism. And uh, so it was a battle. It didn't come out the way that we wanted it to come out. The good news is we've educated people about this crazed effort to uh, secure more leniency for child pornographers and pedophiles who knew. Who knew? So we'll at least be on the alert for that. Uh, and we should be on the alert for, and and hold accountable those who are okay with a process that was uh, explicitly based on race and sex discrimination. So good luck to Judge uh, Justice Jackson, or soon to be Justice Jackson, I don't know if she's been sworn in yet, And, uh, but uh, pray for America that we will continue to have a court or that we are blessed with a court that protects our rights, protects our constitution, rather than it is turned into a political operation that seeks to overturn our constitutional protections and steal our liberty and our right to govern ourselves by legislating from the bench, as opposed to applying the law and interpreting the constitution as they're supposed to. So uh, next up in terms of good court news, is uh, a big victory in California. I've been telling you about Judicial Watch's taxpayer lawsuits against the leftists in California who have decided that uh, laws against discrimination, specifically in the California Constitution, don't matter anymore. And they were going to require, in a set of two laws, the first law that was passed, uh, gender quotas on boards of directors for public companies. That uh, if you're a publicly traded company, after a certain amount of time, depending on the size of your board, you had to have a certain number of women on the board. So that meant that there would be slots on the board that no man could apply for. Outright discrimination. Obviously, barred by law and the Constitution. But the radical left in California, legislature and the governor didn't care. Even as they were signing it into law, both the legislature and the governor, as they're considering this, they understood it was constitutionally infirm. But the extremist left, they don't care about the rule of law, and they're just trying to see what works and what they can get away with. And what Judicial Watch did was we sued against, we sued that law, uh, or sued uh, on behalf of taxpayer, Clients, So taxpayers in California have the right to challenge laws like that when tax dollars are being used to uh, pay for illicit activity, which is this discriminatory quota program. And so what happened is the legislature then doubled down and passed a second law. And the second law required uh, discrimination and quotas on the basis of race, ethnicity and LGBT status that was similarly constitutionally infirm, but they didn't care and they passed it anyway. So what did Judicial Watch do? Judicial Watch filed a second lawsuit on behalf of taxpayers. And kudos to our clients who stepped forward here, our our citizen clients in California. And in the first case, the gender case, we went to trial. And the trial, I've been talking about it if you've been following us, the trial just ended a few weeks ago. Oh, maybe about a month ago. We don't have a decision yet. It lasted several weeks, but uh, the court hasn't made a decision yet. It was before the judge, it wasn't before a jury. And so we expect the judge to make a decision soon. Uh, but in the second case, the case against uh, the uh, race quotas, we won! We won! We went to a hearing, as I disclosed to you before, where the court was considering motions for summary judgment by us and the defendants. And motions for summary judgment are essentially, we should win without a trial. And of course the defense says they should win without a trial. And the court ruled as unconstitutional, this quota scheme that the legislature put out there, requiring that boards of directors uh, fulfill some type of quota scheme based on race, ethnicity, and LGBT status. It was uh, an historic ruling because it would be Katie bar the door if uh, that court allowed it to go forward because you can bet the left would have been right out there pushing for quotas all over the country. And here in this case, it was a a state court judge who uh, made the ruling based on the plain language of the constitution in California and found the court or or found the state's arguments wanting. So weak that uh, he didn't need a trial to figure out what was up and what was down. And so uh, he issued the ruling, it was last Friday, I think it was shortly after um, I I did our weekly update last week and, um, right? I don't think we talked about it last week, right. And so it was a one-page ruling saying, you know, I'm granting summary judgment, and boom, the news was all over the country. And then on Monday, we got a hold of the decision, which described his thinking. Uh, But I tell you, this is big news, because this is a historic victory, as I said, that um, is going to set a precedent and have national implications. What did I say? You know, it's funny, I do these press releases and we think very carefully about what I'll say with respect to these big cases. And then I don't repeat myself on important (laughs) videos like this. So I think it's worth highlighting what I said. This historic California court decision declared unconstitutional one of the most blatant and significant attacks in the modern era on constitutional prohibitions against discrimination. In its ruling, the court upheld the core American value of equal protection under the law. Judicial Watch's taxpayer clients are heroes for standing up for civil rights against the less pernicious efforts to undo anti discrimination. Protections, You know, and as we noted in one of our pleadings before the court, which is our motion for summary judgment specifically, and this is simple, laws that explicitly distinguish between individuals on racial or ethnic sexual preference and transgender status grounds fall within the core prohibition of the equal, pro, uh, equal protection clause. Indeed, a Senate floor analysis, this is the California Senate, produced during deliberation on the legislation, concluded that the bill draws distinctions based on race and ethnicity, and therefore it is suspect, and that the existence of general societal discrimination will not ordinarily satisfy courts. And then in the Assembly of California, they found that the bill would result in ongoing costs in the hundreds of thousands of dollars to gather demographic information and compile a report on this data on its internet website. So that is what, by the way, that's why you can't spend, that's where we come in and say, well, you can't spend money doing a legal activity like that to engage in discrimination as part of a a mandate for discrimination. And what what was the state's defense? Well, we're not enforcing the law. I mean, they're so proud of the law, they won't enforce it because they know it's suspect. So here is the decision that we were able to uh, the judge issued. It's a 24 page decision. And the title of the case is Crest et al versus Bedelia. The legislature, um, you know, and the court, I didn't agree necessarily with everything the court said, uh, and, I'll, and you'll see why here. There's nothing outlandish or incredible about the idea that people generally tend to socialize with and select other people like themselves. The natural result of this tendency is the exclusion of people who look and act differently. And the natural result of that exclusion is the loss of the acumen that those different people would bring to a conversation business or any other group. The underlying premise here is that demographic diversity is a reasonable proxy for differing perspectives and life experiences. That premise is not seriously challenged by anyone involved in this case. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but it's what the judge said. If demographically homogeneous boards are a problem, then heterogeneous boards are the immediate and obvious solution. But that doesn't mean the legislature can skip directly to mandating heterogeneous boards. The difficulty is that the legislature is thinking in group terms, but the California constitution protects the rights of individuals. And that's something the court emphasized directly. I'm not emphasizing this. It's in the decision. The rights of individuals to equal treatment. Before the legislature may require that members of one group be given certain board seats, it must first try to create neutral conditions under which qualified individuals from any group can succeed. That attempt was not made in this case. And that, to me, is like an, imp- that to me is it, an important insight. It's not like an important insight. It is an important insight, which is that the left wants to treat you as a member of a group. And of course, our Constitution doesn't generally protect group rights. It protects you from being targeted because you are a member of a group. But the core truth of the Constitution and the core genius of the Constitution is designed to protect our individual liberties. It sets up a structure of government to protect our individual liberties, not groups of people. And if you want to destroy your liberties, tell, let the government tell you, you benefit or are punished because of a membership in a group. That's at odds with the American tradition and American rule of law. And that's what they were trying to do in California. Really radical stuff. So it's a lengthy opinion. I obviously can't read it all, but I'm gonna read some of it because I know you're not gonna read it all either. And this is a discussion of the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution of California. Article 1, Section 7 of the California Constitution says, a person may not be deprived of life, liberty or property without due process of law or denied equal protection of the law. A citizen or class of citizens or a citizen or class of citizens may not be granted privileges or immunities not granted on the same terms to all citizens. Privileges or immunities granted by the legislature may be altered or revoked. So the point is you all have to be treated equally in California. That's even stronger than the language of the Constitution of the United States. And there was a major case that the shorthand way of describing it is Connerly. And it's, it, it's, the, governing, it's the governing precedent in California. A legislative classification satisfies equal protection of the law so long as persons similarly situated with respect to legitimate purpose of the law receive like treatment. So again, no race-based favoritism, no race-based set aside, or in this case, race, ethnicity, and LGBT status. So they've even broadened it, and that, I'm not even getting into the question of the self-identifying nature of those categories that the uh, left is now embracing, which kind of blows everything else out of the water in ways that you know we could spend three hours talking through the ramifications of that. Legislative classifications generally are entitled to judicial deference. However, judicial deference does not extend to laws that employ suspect classifications, such as race, So think about this, it's like, well, you know, you can say, well, that person lives in that uh, jurisdiction and that person lives in that jurisdiction and we're gonna treat them equally and, you know, kind of, uh, or maybe someone will benefit more because they live in a different jurisdiction. But the idea that you say that person is this race and that person is that race, and then treat them differently. No, 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 the courts are look askance at that for good reason, as you might imagine. Because suspect classifications are pernicious. Pernicious and are so rarely relevant to a legitimate governmental purpose, they are subjected to strict judicial scrutiny. I.e., they may be upheld only if they are shown to be necessary for furtherance of a government compelling state interest and they address the interest through the least restrictive means available. So, again, I'm not a lawyer, so. Bear with me here. In order for this type of scheme to work, the government has to prove, and it's up to them to, disc- to prove, in my view, and I think legally it is too, but you know, certainly it makes sense. It would be, uh, they'd have to prove this, that, look, there is a compelling state interest here, and, um, and it's the least restrictive means available. So it can't be extreme or aggressive. And, and by the way, it's gotta be really compelling what the state interest is. And what the government was saying is that, well, yeah, these are suspect classifications. The compelling state interests interests are the following, uh, remedying racial discrimination. And the other compelling interest is, uh, it's good for business. And if it's good for business, we'll get more taxes from it. And the court said, well, those, neither of those are good enough. And this is why. Yeah, so the court found that just uh, citing general societal discrimination ain't good enough. You have to have specific instances of discrimination that would allow, and only then that might allow, the state to say, well, yeah, this person was discriminated on the basis of race, John Smith, and therefore he has to be hired. Or, you know, someone had this practice of excluding blacks from jobs because they were black. So therefore, there's a remedy that gives preference to certain job applicants who are black. That's a very narrow remedy. And obviously, um, you know, there's, there's no doubt, by the way, that these categories of suspect classifications. There's no doubt this law triggers the sort of scrutiny that we're talking about. It requires corporations to have a specific number of directors who are members of certain listed races or else have certain listed sexual orientations or gender identities. People of other races, orientations, and identities are necessarily excluded from these board seats. I really can't believe we're even having to talk about this in this day and age. I mean, first of all, we got the federal constitution the Fourteenth Amendment that requires equal protection under the law, and then we've had subsequent civil rights statutes that have been passed in the decades after that, mostly in the '60s and such, and then the state variations of it and changes to state constitutions. And here we are, 60 years later, at least from the '60s, and they're and they're trying to undo all of that. The left is. And with regard to the economic argument, it's good for business. Well, first of all, we'd beg to differ. Discrimination's never good for business. Because that's what this is about. This isn't a question of, oh, let's have diversity or let's have people from various backgrounds on the boards and think that's not the issue. The issue is, do you, let people. you tell people you can't apply because of your race or because you have the wrong sexual identity. Of course not. And the court highlighted if, you know, under the idea that it's good for business, that means you could get the government to do anything in terms of mandating discrimination as long as they massage the numbers properly. So that was a big loss. So this is how the judge concludes. A member of the public whom all three branches of government serve might wonder at this result, given some of the concessions made in the record. He's talking about the value of diversity. If the legislature has identified a social problem, how can the court stand in the way of the obvious and direct approach to solving it? There are two complementary answers to the question. The first comes from the differing functions accorded to the different branches. It is the function of the judicial branch to resolve disputes. Courts serve that function in part by maintaining the continuity of rules even against the will of a majority. Residents of all stripes can feel more at home and more at peace with one another if they know the rules are stable even when they don't like those rules. The second is that fundamental values, whether personal or social, must be guarded. Equal treatment and opportunity of all and for all individuals, regardless of how they look or identify, is one of these this state's basic commitments. Sometimes, and in some places, the citizens of this state will not live up to that ideal, meaning they'll engage in discrimination. But the thing that caused the problem Discrimination is not always the right tool to fix the problem. Only in very particular cases should discrimination be remedied by more discrimination. And that should only happen after obvious alternative measures have been tried. Sometimes a direct approach should be the last resort, not the first. Now, this is the judge who wrote that. That's Judge Terry Green. He's a judge at the Superior Court in California. Uh, and you know, he, he's, a, he's a judge in California. I don't necessarily agree with his analysis there in terms of how charitable he was to the California state legislature's pernicious racism or racial uh, quota scheme. Uh, but his point is that if you're concerned about race in our nation's public life, uh, if you want people to be treated according to the content of their character, A, you gotta A, follow the rules and you can't cheat. And you can't say this person gets a special benefit because of the color of their skin. And it's rare that I quote uh, Chief Justice Roberts, or in this case, I may misquote him, but I think I'm getting the general gist of his quote right. He said the way to end racial discrimination is to stop discrimination based on race. I mean, the solution to race discrimination is not more race discrimination. And to be clear, as we've uh, we litigated in the gender case, and we were prepared to litigate, and I think our expert probably would have been able to refute any arguments in this regard. They didn't really have evidence that there was discrimination. The highlight of the court's decision, or one of the highlights of the court's decision, was, you know, they were talking about racial discrimination generally. Well, they didn't because the, the, because the, there wasn't enough numbers on the boards. Uh, that fit in with the demography generally of race in California. Well, A, they were using national numbers, but B, they weren't looking at the group from which corporate board members are selected. So it was was like a gazemanship even with numbers. They couldn't even prove discrimination, let alone the level of the specific specific direct discrimination that would have resulted in a narrowly tailored remedy that would have allowed potentially for a certain acknowledgement of race in certain hirings. So this is a big decision. And as I said in our subsequent release on that, describing the court's findings here uh, in uh, our California case. And as I said in one of our other statements about this case, California must treat its citizens equally everywhere Every state should do that under the law and not give discriminatory preferential treatment to some based on race, ethnicity, or LGBT status. The court ruling marks a watershed for the core American value of equal protection under the law for all Americans, and it warns against the pernicious racialism of the radical left. And what's interesting about this uh, is the media reaction to it, because they really don't know what to say or do. Uh, Because there is no legal justification for what went on here. I mean, I'm excited about this ruling, but I don't know what, you know, I can't imagine we would have lost or should have lost. But you never know with the courts. So, I mean, it was clearly illegal. It was clearly unlawful what was going on here. As I highlighted, the governor and the legislature, they knew it was likely to be found unconstitutional. So, A, the headlines were, Uh, court rules against California's diversity requirements. Well, that's a nice way of saying, you know, quotas. But secondly, the general left's approach now is, oh, well, you know, we can't have government mandates maybe, but maybe we can get private mandates requiring discrimination on the basis of race and these other qualifications or other categories. So now the left is pushing the idea that we'll we will um, we'll have private pressure and private investors will get the big Wall Street firms to force corporations to hire people based on race. Well, that's not legal either. This is pernicious and it's not gonna stop with this victory, unfortunately, because as I highlighted the, left's, the left says, okay, well, we'll just do this privately. Well, you can't discriminate on the basis of race in hiring people. I mean, do I have to explain that? But they don't care. They don't care and they're continuing. I mean, Judicial Watch objected to uh, this reporting requirement uh, for boards of directors in the NASDAQ Stock Exchange, a reporting requirement that would have pushed, obviously, uh, for A, categorizing people based on race and then implicitly hiring them based on race and other categorizations. Again. Suspect categorizations. And, you know, the Obama, excuse me, the Biden, well, maybe it's, well, forget about that joke. I sometimes get confused about the who's running which administration. So the Biden Securities Exchange Commission blessed that. And then we have the NFL out there saying that they're going to require NFL teams to have a specific coaching decision, uh, position that can only be filled by someone of a particular race or, I don't remember if it's gender too or not, I think it was just race. Again, outright discrimination. So they're planning to violate the law. And of course, this Biden administration supports this. CRT, and this is critical theory, by the way, the idea that only by having someone of a different skin color are are you blessed, are you vindicated, Or or, or is is your organization valid? Obviously that's not true. The question is, are you discriminating on the basis of race? And if you're not, it's none of your, no one else's business, it's no one else's business. But the critical theorists, they believe it's always their business. And if you don't agree, they'll come after you, which is the segue to our next case. I've told you about a Judicial Watch lawsuit that was filed on behalf of a high school football coach, Coach Flynn up in Massachusetts, then in Massachusetts, we filed a several a civil rights lawsuit in federal court. He was fired for objecting to this racialism in his daughter's seventh grade history class. So he sued. And the trial has been set for September of of this year. We have a hearing next week on it. Again, a summary judgment hearing where the court's gonna decide competing efforts. Although I think we wanna go to trial. I don't even think we have a, a, a motion for summary judgment. But it doesn't matter, they're trying to end the case. So this was a father in Massachusetts who uh, was fired from his position as a high school football coach after raising concerns over Black Lives Matter critical race theory being taught in his daughter's seventh grade history class. And it wasn't like current events. It was ancient history. And David Flynn, he's the father of two, uh, or at least was the father of two Dedham public school students, I think he may have pulled them out after this dispute, he was removed from his position after exercising his right as a parent citizen to raise concerns about his daughter's history curriculum being changed to include biased coursework on politics, race, gender equality, and diversity. So these CRT fights, I mean, you see parents objecting, but some people's livelihoods are being affected when they are targeted for abuse from the bureaucracy, the school leftists that are running the show in these jurisdictions. And I guess, you know, I shouldn't say they're all leftists. Some of them prob- may or not leftists, but they just do what they think they need to do to stay in their position, it looks like. In December, in September, 2020, Flynn's daughter's seventh grade history class, which was listed as World Geography and Ancient History one was taught uh, issues of race, gender, and st- race, gender stereotypes, prejudices, discrimination, and politics. This is what we say. In one assignment, Flynn's daughter was asked to consider various risk factors and mitigating factors that two people, one identified as, quote, white, and the other identified as black, pur- purportedly might use to assess each other on a city street, including the various factors, including among the various factors were skin color, gender, age, physical appearance, and attire. Black, aggressive body language, and wrong neighborhood were among the risk factors purportedly assessed by the person identified as white. White and police officer were among the risk factors. Again, a police officer was assessed in this training curriculum for children to be a risk factor for black kids. So Flynn and his wife contacted the history teacher and the principal And then the superintendent. And then three members of the uh, Denham High School, uh, the Denham School Committee, the local committee. And he asked for assistance and he wasn't getting anywhere and he removed his children from the school. And these were his concerns, all legitimate. They changed the curriculum without notifying parents or providing a course description and syllabus uh, available for parents to review Again, yeah, this is kind of this is these are the fights you hear about. The new curriculum contained coursework on politics, race, gender, equality, and diversity that were not suitable for twelve and thirteen year olds. Again, we're hearing a lot about that too on other topics. They weren't teaching these topics objectively, so it was this left wing political bent. The history teacher used the cartoon character of herself during one of the Zoom classes, wearing a T-shirt supporting. I think it was Black Lives Matter. And he was head football coach since 2011, and they fired him after 10 years for Denham High School. And he's called into a meeting, and they say, what are we gonna do about this? They show him an email that he gets sent complaining about the curriculum. And at the end of the meeting, Flynn was told they were going in a different direction with the football program. And then after he left, they released a public statement embarrassing him by saying he was fired because he expressed significant philosophical differences with the direction, goals, and values of the school district. So here you have the head football coach fired because he complained about his daughter's curriculum in another school, which is his God-given First Amendment right. And he had a right to object as a citizen and father to extremist racial propaganda in his child's history class. And this federal trial over this abuse can't come soon enough. And of course, what is the government's response? What are the defendants' response? They've got qualified immunity, right? What does qualified immunity generally mean? Again, my non-lawyer analysis is it means you can't sue them. (laughs) They're not proper defendants, these individuals who fired because they did the work as government officials and they've got immunity. Because they were just doing their job. And as I say, defend, oh, excuse me, as our lawyers say, defendants have not demonstrated a legitimate reason why Dedham public school interest outweighed Flynn's First Amendment rights. No case has even come close to suggesting speech outside the confines of the classroom or football field can be a disruption to the educational mission of the school district. Similarly, no case comes to close to concluding that parents' strong views of how a school district handled concerns about their child education is not protected speech. So There's going to be hearing on this next week on Monday. You can actually register. Well, maybe too late to register by the time you read this or hear this. But I'll let you know what happens next week, assuming that we get some news back. So this isn't the only case we have. There's another school teacher who was fired for TikTok videos, I think she made, or other social media videos, videos she made when she was running for the school district. And I think she was complaining about the transgender extremist agenda. So they fired her. And another school teacher out in Illinois that we're representing, she was fired because she posted Facebook, um, Facebook kind of commentary. wasn't all that even, you know, wasn't even like harsh. It was she was saying, "I'm glad I'm not up in Chicago where there's a lot of violence," or something like that, and they fired her. Just outrageous. You criticize the left's agenda, you get fired. And that's illegal under our Constitution, if you're a teacher. And and it's important that we take a stand here, because as we're seeing in recent weeks and months, you know, the left has expanded what they want to prohibit criticism of. If you criticize the transgender extremist agenda, you want kids to die. You say the wrong thing on the internet, you'll be banned. So they wanted the ability to propagandize our children, talk about inappropriate things ranging from sex to politics with our children. And if you object, they'll fire you if you're a teacher. Or you criticize them, they'll fire you. If you're a parent, they'll target you as a terrorist. The Biden Justice Department. And I tell you, we're gonna do what we can do to protect those who are being targeted here. A, we're gonna expose the targeting. And B, when the lines are crossed and we have the capacity, we're gonna come in and protect and defend the rule of law and vindicate the rights of these people to be able to talk about matters of public policy concerning their children, concerning their community. I keep on saying, and and the phrase I will say again, it's the Great Suppression. We're in the middle of the Great Suppression and we gotta stand against it. Now, the other issue I wanna talk about before I go is the breaking news of the extraordinary jury decision and and partly non-decision in Michigan over the Governor Gretchen Whitmer, so-called kidnapping plot. You may recall, uh, just before the 2020 election, the FBI and the Justice Department made a big noise about uh, upending and exposing a vicious murderous plot to kidnap uh, Governor Whitmer, who was uh, a notorious governor in the sense that uh, she had this horribly aggressive uh, COVID lockdown approach that trampled upon the rights of citizens and people were objecting. So uh, what happened is the FBI... Uh, highlighted this plot to kidnap her. And people were arrested. And of course, Trump was blamed, right? About a month before the election, all this comes out. So what happens today? A jury just acquitted two of the defendants and deadlocked on charges against two more based largely on the fact that it looks like the whole plot was engineered by FBI informants. So it highlights the corruption of the FBI targeting people based on politics. I mean, the FBI was highlighting or they're trying to highlight a trial that these people were saying terrible things about potential violence and things. and, and, And the whole point was, well, that was just talk and they hadn't followed up on it until the FBI came up, came in with their informants and started pushing it. And that obviously persuaded the jury. So to me, this is all part and parcel of the corruption. The overreach by the politicized Justice Department, the FBI going after politically disfavored individuals to try to jail them. In this case, opponents of lockdowns and critics of a Democratic governor in Michigan. I mean, we had the first... We had the first... um, acquittal of a January 6th defendant this week. Because the judge, it was a judge trial, he was, he was uh, persuaded that the guy was innocent because he, all he did was walk in, into the Capitol um, and the police let him in. I mean, how do you have an insurrection when the police let you into the building, huh? Yet the Justice Department was willing to prosecute that man for that? That's an outrage. How many other folks pled guilty to similar charges because they didn't know what else to do or are facing similar charges still for behavior that isn't criminal like that? I mean, we aren't talking about the people who are alleged to have beaten police or anything like that. That's what they always wanna say, oh, well, all these people have hit. Not, not everyone was involved in violence there. There are many people who are being prosecuted for nonviolent behavior, for being in the wrong place. That at best could have been handled, that at least could have been handled with simple fines if there was an issue there. But instead you have federal prosecutions, it's unbelievable. And it's all about targeting the political enemies of the Biden administration and the Pelosi Congress and scaring off Americans from exercising their First Amendment rights to petition their government. Time and time again, it shows up. And thankfully, this Whitmer jury saw through this FBI entrapment scheme. And look, I'm, I'm pro-prosecution sometimes in some of these things. I know some, some folks don't always agree with me on this. But I tell you, these days, I, I don't trust the FBI and the Justice Department to do much. Do you? I don't. So that's a big deal. And um, the other development I want to talk about is in our big victory in Maryland, uh, which uh, we filed on behalf of voting uh, voters in Maryland. And uh, we won, as I've told you before, against the Maryland gerrymandered map that was abusive and unconstitutional. The judge found it was extreme and she threw out the map. It was set up by a supermajority of Democrats over the objections of the governor who was a Republican. And it wasn't because we were, they were Democrats. No, what they did was they abused the powers entrusted to them by Maryland voters to abuse voters with an abusive, gerrymandered map that treated voters like pawns contrary to the Constitution. And so what happened is the judge in a historic ruling threw out that map. Great victory. Great victory for Judicial Watch. Our lawyers did a great job. And what happened was Maryland, the the state, appealed it, uh, but they also passed a new map quickly. So the new map was not perfect, but it was pretty good and much better than the prior map. So that meant that... uh, the political views or the voters of the opposite political persuasion were more protected and more respected their rights in this map. So, Governor Hogan, the governor of Maryland, signed the map. They've dropped the appeal. So, we won. Case is over. I think it's over. <laughs> I've been around lawyers long enough to know that sometimes you think something's over, but then something else happens. But it's a big victory. And as I uh, highlighted, it was the first time, I think in the modern era, at least, that a Maryland redistricting map, congressional map, has been thrown out by a court. So we made great law there, uh, and we vindicated the rights of our, our clients and the citizens of all Maryland. See, so the thing about gerrymandering is, it, abu- you know, the left always talks about it as these evil Republicans are gerrymandering. And sometimes Republicans gerrymander. that's true. But Democrats do it too. And my point is that when Republicans gerrymander in a state, it, it abuses and it's illegal in the sense that they've got these crazy looking maps and they're, as I said, treating people like pawns or trying to pick voters rather than having the voters pick politicians. That treats, that, that ends up treating Republicans poorly and it treats Democrats poorly. So Republican gerrymanders abuse both Republicans and Democrats. Democrat gerrymanders abuse both Democrats and Republicans. One party st- one party operations that don't at least respect the rights of their political opponents. Obviously it's their opponents that suffer, but also, you know, if you're in Maryland, you're put in a let's say a, you know, a plus 15 democratic district that goes up and down the state like a crazed washer test. And what what you you, all you get to do is, you know, vote for whatever the party nominee is. Right. You never really have the ability to persuade, uh, you know, sway an election one way or another. So, you know, There's an irony in terms of being in a a jurisdiction where you've got a super majority of the district being uh, one political party. You don't have as much choice. And oftentimes, because you're a valuable voter, because you vote one way, you're often asked to vote for someone who doesn't even represent you locally in the sense that, oh, you live in this part of the state, you're kind of drawn into a map that has a politician from the far side of the state representing you who doesn't really know anything about where you live. So gerrymandering is, is to use my word of the day, pernicious, especially when it's abusive. And Judicial Watch has uh, taken an historic step to undo an improper effort to rig elections in Maryland. And so more is coming. We have litigation over, that's ongoing, over dirty voting rolls. We're planning additional litigation to clean up voting rolls. And we're otherwise doing our darndest to ensure that the left isn't able to, um, undermine uh, basic election security measures that are already in place, and uh, we're also trying to actually strengthen election security measures as well. So a lot going on at Judicial Watch. I appreciate your time today, and I will see you here next week, I hope, on the Judicial Watch Weekly Update. Thanks for listening to the Judicial Watch Weekly Update with Tom Fitton. For more information, visit www.judicialwatch.org because no one is above the law.